0: This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge of Wharton.
1: Hi, my name is Stephanie Creary, and I'm an assistant professor of management at the Wharton School, University of Pennsylvania and I'm delighted to welcome you to the Knowledge at Wharton Leading Diversity at Work podcast series. Today's very special episode is with John Rogers, Jr., who for more than 35 years has been at the helm of Ariel Investments. Ariel Investments is the first African-American money management and mutual fund company. And most recently, he has been co-leading the firm with his co-CEO, Melody Hobson. John has also served as a board director on the boards of several publicly traded corporations which currently include Nike, McDonald's and the New York Times. So in addition to that, John also serves as vice chair of the board of trustees of the University of Chicago and a member of the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. So without a doubt, John has had such a storied and remarkable career to date. In 2008, John was awarded Princeton University's highest honor, the Woodrow Wilson Award. Following the election of President Barack Obama, John served as the co-chair for Barack Obama's presidential inaugural committee in 2009. And more recently, John joined Barack Obama's foundations, uh, the Barack Obama Foundation's board of director. John, thank you so much for joining us here today. Welcome to the Leading Diversity at Work podcast. I'm so thrilled to have you here with us.
0: Well, thank you for inviting me. I'm really looking forward to it.
1: Absolutely. So let's start uh, with a bit of a reflection. And now I'm not gonna ask you to reflect on your whole life. I I just actually want you to reflect on uh, the most recent uh, events occurring here in the US and around the world. Um, And I think many of us just refer to this as the summer of 2020. I think we have a name for 2020 as a whole, but we certainly refer to uh, the remarkable set of events around calls to end systemic racism around the world uh, during the summer of 2020. Um, I'm wondering how you are currently thinking about that now today Um, where we've been with respect to this issue of um, systemic racism calls to end systemic racism, and where you think we really do need to be going and where we need to be focusing our energies?
0: Well, right now, it is is a pivotal time, and I'm actually optimistic for the first time in a very, very long time. I think all the attention that's come to the challenges that we face in the African-American community because of the murder of George Floyd and the other tragic tragedies that happened this summer and this spring, have really captured the attention of America, the world, and in particular, the business leadership in this country. So I'm seeing more and more through direct calls, through what I'm reading, what I'm hearing, that companies are really interested in hiring African-Americans, creating internship programs for African-Americans, doing business with African-American firms, creating capital for African-American entrepreneurs. They're hitting on all cylinders. And um, and I think it's it's really been um, encouraged, of course, by the very progressive Congress that we have now. Mm-hmm. And we have dynamic leaders like Maxine Waters now chairing the House Financial Services Committee, and Congresswoman Joyce Beatty chairing the Subcommittee on Diversity and Inclusion. When you have these powerful, dynamic women pushing the diversity agenda, people are listening. People realize the big banks and the big institutions realize they have to do better. They have to do more. Mm-hmm. And so I'm really excited about the future. And the only thing I kind of kind of remind everyone is it's great for us to get internships, it's great for us to get capital, but we need to get corporate America to do business with Black businesses. We need access to customers as well as we need access to capital. And sometimes that's forgotten uh, with, with these progressive initiatives.
1: So certainly you inspire me, John, and you get me really excited about this conversation. Though I'm wondering about people who you may have come across. I know I come across them Every day, there are all races, genders, and ages um, who feel a bit skeptical that all of this corporate energy around ending systemic racism um, is real um, and that it acts is actually sustainable. So how do you think about the skepticism? Do you, would you say that people have the right to feel skeptical? Uh, do you think they should suspend disbelief? What are your thoughts on that?
0: Clearly, there's been reasons uh, for people to be skeptical. Uh, when you see how we've been treated in this country, um, you can't help but be skeptical. Every time we start to get ahead, something horrific happens. You know, when you read Nicole hannah Jones's 1619 Project, when you read the story she had in the New York Times magazine, What is Owed," You know, she talks about um, what happened in Tulsa and the race riots when we were starting to build the Black Wall Street and create real wealth in the Black communities. Uh, we know what happened in the Jim Crow era. We know that after uh, re- Reconstruction, we didn't even get our 40 uh, you know, 40 acres and a mule. I mean, so there's reasons to be skeptical. Um, we also know the wealth gap in this country has gotten tremendously worse over the last 40 years. Irrespective of the, of the civil rights movement and all the movement we, we got and all the opportunities we got to be able to vote, be able to sit at the lunchroom tables and uh, the counters, we made progress but when it came to wealth building, we've gone backwards in the last 40 years. So there truly is reason to be skeptical. But I do just feel like there's just something changing right now. And I think part of it is because of this, uh, having the most progressive Congress in the country's history that I mentioned earlier, Uh, you're starting to see also uh, the next generation of younger people I know are challenging their parents. I got a call from the CEO of a big family owned business and he said his daughter was challenging him on the lack of diversity within his corporation. I think this is something that's happening now, and that's why I have more optimism and not quite as skeptical as I traditionally am.
1: So you mentioned wealth building, and certainly I would expect you to mention wealth building. This is, this is the work that you do and what you've committed your lives to. So just imagine that some of the people who are listening to our podcast do not have the basics of understanding um, what the issues are, so how uh, institutionalized racism has prevented um, uh, wealth uh, for African-American community, Um, and they don't understand, so they might not understand the gaps and they might not understand the opportunities. Can you break it down for just the average lay listener who might not understand uh, this question of wealth and how deeply rooted it is?
0: The way that I look at this wealth issue is that it's going in the wrong direction, as I mentioned earlier. This last 40 years or so, it's been horrific what's happened. So if you think about it, uh, Dean uh, Kerwin Charles of Yale's Business School has all this data that shows that Black Americans are worse off relative to white Americans than our grandparents were. Mm -hmm. That's just unbelievable that that could be the case. Um, Ray Bashara and his team at the Federal Reserve Board of uh, St. Louis has done all this research that shows the college-educated African-Americans between 1992 and 2016 saw their wealth decline roughly 10 percent, while college-educated whites saw their wealth increase over you 96 know, percent. So up over 90 percent for college-educated whites, down 10 percent for college-educated blacks over a 25-year period. People have just no idea how much worse off we are and we're missing out on the key economic opportunities in the parts of the economy where the wealth is being created today primarily wall street silicon valley where you know we are still continuing to try to work in yesterday's industries and tomorrow's industries where again the real opportunity is we continue to be locked out it almost reminds me of baseball in 1940.
1: that's such an interesting perspective because i would say that perhaps prior to the summer of 2020 many people would think that we've made substantial racial progress. So let me give you an example. Um, If you look even at the University of Penn campus, there are many more black African-American students on our college campus than there were 20 or 30 years ago. Why is that not correlated, if you will, or does not seem to be correlated with wealth? Doesn't getting an education somehow relate to wealth building?
0: No, not at all. You know, because I think of the, you know, unconscious biases out there or the systemic biases that our society, we get hired into great organizations when we come out of great institutions, but then slowly but surely we realize we're not getting to be the managing directors. We're not getting to be the partners. We're not getting to the c suites and the management committees. We somehow get weeded out fairly quickly in the pecking order. And it's because these major white institutions are not treating us fairly. They don't respect our intellect, our work habits, our imagination, our thoughtfulness. And you see it time and time again. And I think we need to get more research around that. You and I have talked about that. We need to be able to show that in real time, how it doesn't matter how great the education is if you're not going to be treated fairly in the work world. You know, the data is is just unbelievable. Most of the major private equity firms and venture capital firms in this country have never had an African-American professional, let alone partner or managing director. And here in Chicago, if you look at the top 100 publicly traded companies, there's one um, African-American CEO out of the top 100.
1: Mm-hmm. If
0: you look at the, in Chicago, if you look at the Crane's list of top 300 or so odd companies, um, privately held companies here in Chicago. And out of those roughly 300 companies, there's only three that are African-American. You know, how does that happen? Um, where you would think we would be doing better, but we're basically a rounding error when it comes to the business community here in Chicago, even with all the educational opportunities that have come come our
1: way. Absolutely. I think, you know, one of the things that has always intrigued me about you and the work that you do is um, as somebody who has been, I think at the forefront of pushing these issues, particularly um, as they affect the African-American community and business leaders, and certainly is a very prominent a leader um, at the top of many uh, boards, on many boards um, who who govern organizations. I've heard you speak prominently both uh, in all forms of media about the need to um, increase diversity, increase the representation of of black board directors um, and corporate boards. So would you say, is is there a link between this conversation that we're having around wealth management and this larger passion of yours around increasing the diversity of corporate boards?
0: So far, unfortunately, there has not been much of a link. Mm -hmm. Um, And so, you know, I'm of of, of two minds here. On the one hand, Melody and I are really pushing really hard to get more African-Americans on corporate boards and at aerial investments and aerial mutual funds, we can point to roughly 50 instances where over the, time we've been in business where we've been able to get a company to have what we call a Jackie Robinson moment and have their first diverse board member. And we're thrilled we can push the company managements to do the right things. We have conversations almost every day with the management team about how disappointed we are that they haven't moved forward with diversity on their boards. So that's important. But as you know, we started the Black Corporate Directors Conference 18 years ago with Charles Tribbett from Russell Reynolds. And now we have Deloitte as a partner also. We felt that it was critical that we we would bring African-American directors together and try to inspire African-Americans that are on corporate boards to speak out and fight for economic justice and fairness once they're in the boardroom. The hypothesis is if we get into these leadership roles and don't speak up and speak out and don't follow John Lewis's mission of making good trouble, we give cover for the status quo to stay the same. And the often white CEO says, well, my black board member isn't pushing for anything to change. We must be doing A-OK here at our corporation. So every year at the conference, we have what we call the conscience of the conference. Often it's been people who actually marched with Dr. King, people like Harry Belafonte, Andy Young, Reverend Jackson, um, uh, the late Congressman John Lewis. We've, as the years have gone on, we've had other leaders who lived those values, like Eric Holder. President Obama, Valerie Jarrett, um, Reverend Sharpton, coming every year to remind African-Americans on the corporate boards they have this responsibility. And we call those speakers the conscience of the conference because they're going to hold us accountable to the responsibilities we have to fight for each other once we get into these leadership roles and get into the board roles. If we don't, the economic uh, divide will just get larger and larger. And if you can be doing all the right things with your charitable work, but if all the economic opportunities are going to white men, the wealth gap just by its very definition is going to grow larger and larger.
1: So I want to take us more deeply into this issue of um, corporate boards and board diversity, uh, you and I have recently began working together. I like to refer to you you as my new friend, John, but we recently started working together on uh, a passion, uh, an interest of both of ours, yours as somebody who has been pushing uh, the envelope in the issues of increasing board diversity and myself as a scholar who's been studying the hows, the whens, the whys, and the why nots of increasing board diversity. And so recently, John and I, started working together um, on trying to understand how uh, firms might be able to tie the commitments that they are making to racial justice to their commitments as board leaders. And so I want to talk a little bit more about uh, the work that you and I are doing, John. Um, We have an article in Progress that's focused on um, giving board director principles for advancing racial justice. And um, just a little bit of context for those who are listening is uh, as I've been doing this research on board directors and board diversity for the past couple of years um, and interviewing lots of board directors, male, female, black, and white, John's name came up several times in the course of these interviews as somebody who I should talk to. So so we hadn't met, I hadn't interviewed him as, as a leader. Um, and it was because people thought that John had not only Uh, such a intellectual and smart perspective on the the issues surrounding the conversation related to board diversity, but also was a passionate person on this topic who no matter what people were expecting or not, he was always going to push for this topic. And so one of the things that John and I first started talking about when we started working together is the difference between board directors who advocate Um, for board diversity and also racial diversity on boards and those who don't. So John, let's start by talking a little bit about your passion for this topic. You've already mentioned the Black Board Directors Conference and starting that, but you've been on this topic for a long time and you continue to be uh, one of the main voices out there talking about the need. Uh, Can you help us understand your inspiration and your motivation for pushing this topic forward?
0: I would say a couple of things have been the inspiration. I think one I have to start with my mom. You know, my mom was the first African American woman to graduate from the University of Chicago Law School in 1946. She was a real pioneer. You know, I'm biased, but I thought she was extraordinarily brilliant, effective, uh, thoughtful, you know, and courageous. And she fought hard. She opened up a lot of doors for African Americans. And eventually, she got asked to serve on a bunch of boards, nonprofit boards, corporate boards. Um, She got opportunities to get honorary degrees. She was, you know, again, the pioneer. But when she would go to the same white men who were honoring her or asking her to serve on a board and say, you know, I'd like you guys to consider my law firm. We have a black owned law firm in our family and we would love to have an opportunity to do legal work for your institution, your corporation, your nonprofit. And nine times out of ten, they basically, in a, in a not so nice way, say that's for the smart white guys. Mm-hmm. They've got the big law firms. They've got all the credentials. They've got all the credibility. You should be just pleased to sit in the boardroom and be the token black woman there. And later, late, later in her life, when she was still going to work at age 75, you know, dying of breast cancer, she was becoming more and more resentful that mediocre white guys who had worked for the big law firms and got all the economic opportunities – were retired in West Palm Beach Mm -hmm. with their retirement plans and their pension plans, their 401k plans, and she still had to go to work every day. So I think that was the inspiration. I saw that my mom didn't get the economic opportunity that she deserved. And that then as time went on, I realized that the programs that were geared toward African Americans were always geared toward construction, catering, janitorial services, which are important businesses. But I tell people that's a modern Jim Jim Crow. That you know, if my mom had been in, gone into catering, she would have had 90% market share from all these white guys. But because she wanted to be their lawyer, they couldn't conceive of her being smart enough and thoughtful enough to do that. And that was morally wrong, and economically unfair. So that was my major inspiration. And then secondly, as I got into more leadership roles. Um, you know, being first, first African American to work at William Blair and Company as a professional here in Chicago, the regional brokerage firm. And then as I got lucky to be on corporate boards, I started to realize that all the really high uh, economic opportunities where the high, where the high margins were
1: mm-hmm.
0: were going to white men. You'd sit in the boardroom and there'd be a transaction happening, a company's buying another company, and you'd go to the law firm where the deal was being consummated and you'd see the five white male lawyers walk into the room, then you'd see the public relations people, the accounting firms, and all the advisors and consultants, and they were always white guys. And I kept saying, here's the the company says they care about diversity and inclusion, but all the economic opportunities are going to white men. So that was my second inspiration. I was fortunate enough to be in the boardroom to see it. And because I was in financial services, I understood the profit margins of being the investment banker versus being the construction or the caterer you know, and uh, or being in construction or being in catering. Those are important fields, as I said earlier. But you want to be in the fields where the high margins and the real profits are being created in the 21st century.
1: Yeah. So let me make the link to your three P's, because I think that'll help um, our audience understand how you grounded these ideas and your inspiration um, into these, these three P's. Can you say more about them?
0: Well, as we were having our meetings every year at the Cor- Black Corporate Directors Conference, and as the number of directors grew from 35 in our first year to over 200 directors last last year, we had it uh, pre-COVID. Um, we realized that the directors are going home often inspired by our conscience of the conference speakers, but not knowing what to do with it, not knowing how to lead around these issues of economic justice in the boardroom. So we thought if we gave them a playbook, it would help them remind them of the three things we hoped they would address in each boardroom that they served in. So the first P of the three P's was philanthropy. We felt you wanted to convince your corporations to give to causes around civil rights and economic justice, not just to the local university, the hospital, the museums that were typically getting the most of the philanthropy. And interestingly, that's where corporations are going today. They start with that first P of philanthropy, which we think is important but not as important as the other two Ps. Uh, the second P is measuring the people and putting into uh, the compensation structures of all executives that they're gonna be held accountable and responsible for having African-Americans in the C-suite and on the management committees in leadership roles and have them understand that you're gonna measure that and see whether progress is happening every year with people in the leadership roles and African-Americans in leadership roles. And the third P comes around purchasing. You know, corporations purchase, you know, often billions and billions of dollars of things. And so we want that purchasing decisions to be measured uh, and kept track of by category. Mm -hmm. So that if you're on the board and you're getting all the spend by category, you'll be able to see how much is going to construction, catering, and janitorial services, but how much is going to advertising agencies, public relations firms, law firms, accounting firms, money managers. 401k plan, etc. technology, of course, being a huge spend in corporate America. And if you have all that data and it's transparently shared with directors and management, the idea is that they will start to spend more money with African-American-owned companies. And then finally, when it comes to purchasing, often corporations, of course, are still going to be working with white corporations all the time. We want them to have incentives to push the white professional services firms and tech firms to have African-Americans on the relationship with that, with that institution. So if you're hiring a law firm, you're hiring a law firm, you want to see Black partners on the relationship. If you're hiring a big accounting firm or consulting firm, you want to see African-American partners on the relationship. But measuring that third P around purchasing is so important. So it's philanthropy, people and purchasing are our three P's that we hope everyone can lead with.
1: Incredibly tangible and certainly incredibly actionable. And, and I think Formed the basis of, of how we started to have a conversation around what more needs to be said on this topic. And I, and I, would, I would say that um, we took this principles of the three Ps that um, you've been touting for some time and thought um, more broadly at a, at a more abstract level, what can uh, boards that are now overseeing firms, governing firms that have made these extremely large aspirational commitments to ending systemic racism, What can boards actually do? And so I wanna spend some time talking about um, what you and I have been uh, talking about. Um, Let me provide some context first for these larger uh, board director principles for advancing racial justice that John and I co-developed. But um, the the backstory to this, and and John is the person who introduced me to this um, inspirational leader's work. Um, In 1977, Reverend Leon Sullivan, who is an American Baptist minister, civil rights leader, and corporate board director, created the Sullivan Principles. Um, And the Sullivan Principles were created to engage U.S. corporations in resisting and eliminating legalized systemic racism under apartheid in South Africa. So these guidelines, the Sullivan Principles, urged U.S. corporations to promote racial integration in company facilities, fair employment practices, equal pay for equal work, training for Black and what were called non-white employees to better position them for career advancement, promotion of more Black and again non-white employees to supervisory positions and improved housing, schooling, and recreation and health facilities for all employees. So There has already been a history, uh, to some extent, of boards and board leaders and Black board directors being active in a conversation around ending a systemic racism. These Sullivan principles were targeted uh, particularly toward um, ending, eliminating legalized systemic racism under apartheid in South Africa. And so John, in our earlier conversations, introduced these principles to me, and we thought that it would be great to think about, um, as we consider the current context of advancing racial justice in the U.S., how we would think about what board director's principles should be under these, um, under these set of circumstances here. And so, uh, John, if you don't mind, I'd like to go through uh, our, our principles, uh, just uh, the organizing framework of these principles. There are six of them. They're organized under three commitments. And so we're going to talk broadly about each of these commitments. Um, And so the first commitment that we thought that um, are important for uh, to be made um, on boards is to recruit racially inclusive board directors. John, let's talk a little bit about your perspective and our perspective on this. Why, if a board is trying to um, help support uh, the ending or the elimination of systemic racism, why is it important to recruit racially inclusive board directors?
0: Well, I think that it's. It's part and parcel of the, the key, key to this question is that you have to, first and foremost, get African-Americans in the boardroom for the first time to help achieve this ultimate goal. And, of course, you're going to be bringing diverse perspectives and points of view into the room, which is going to help make better decision making for that corporation. You're going to have African-Americans that are going to be able to um, help the company relate to their customer base and their diverse customer base, which we think is really, really, really important. And of course, they're going to help you to find talent because when you have a strong, dynamic African-American board member on that board, uh, employees see that and they get say, geez, if there's someone that looks like me that's in the leadership of the organization, maybe I'll go and work at this institution and stay there for the long run. So, having an African-American in the boardroom can really help in developing talent, keeping talent, and recruiting new talent to a corporation.
1: Absolutely. And I think as we started talking about this and having this conversation, both of us had a little bit of concern around uh, tokenism um, or the concerns that other people might have that we would just be creating tokenism by focusing particularly on black board directors. And so we came up with two principles around this larger commitment that we hoped uh, would help to reduce concerns um, and practice of tokenism because the idea here is as you suggested is Um, As we're talking about recruiting racially inclusive board directors and black board directors specifically, we're looking for and we're hoping to um, include uh, black board directors and racially inclusive board directors who actually are promoting um, many of the issues of concern that you and I are talking about. And so the two principles that that we um, came up with was this idea of recruiting board directors who have a track record for supporting and improving racial justice and recruiting board directors from racially diverse pools. Can you say a little bit more about those principles, John?
0: Well, I think it's clear and and it's logical that if you're going to have the first African-American on a corporate board, it should be someone who believes in fairness and inclusion, who believes in economic justice, to help the company achieve the goals they were hoping for when they put that diverse board member on the board the first time. And the second thing is, That person, if that person is going to do their job in helping to recruit talent and be able to relate to customers, the fact that you'd want someone who's African-American who's of the community, who understands what the experiences that we've had in this country, the challenges that we've had in this country since we came here as slaves, you don't want to have someone who comes onto the board who doesn't have an understanding of that, who who doesn't believe that diversity is a good thing for the country. There are people that are African-American who don't believe in affirmative action don't believe in diversity efforts. And we don't think that's the kind of person that should be uh, having that Jackie Robinson moment when they join a board. And then finally, you hope that there's someone who's respected in the broader African-American community nationally. That they know their way around what's going on in the Urban League, what's happening in the NAACP, what's happening in the National Action Network, what's happening in Rainbow, um, been involved in various organizations that impact our community. We think that's critically important. And we think that sometimes, well-meaning corporations forget to ask those basic questions that to me are foundational questions.
1: And we had quite a bit of conversation about this because I think it was so important that as people are thinking about adding board directors and I know so many people are calling you, John, and and your uh, co-CEO Melody Hobson and asking you to be on the board or asking for a referral. um, um, And there's an underlying assumption that every black person is going to be a proponent for ending systemic racism. And I think what you're saying and what we're saying is is that's not necessarily the case. If you're looking for somebody who is going to help you support your commitments that you've made around ending systemic racism or promoting racial justice, then you're really looking for someone who has a track record um, for doing this work and who also come from a pool, uh, a racially diverse pool of people like the Corporate Board Directors Conference who are actually committed to this cause. Uh, so our, our second commitment with that, as we started thinking about who do you want to have on the board, um, we thought that it is important to have a larger commitment to creating a culture of the board, a racially inclusive board culture that effectively takes and harnesses this diversity Um, towards achieving some of these goals. And so the principles that we have around cultivating a a racially inclusive board culture were including the company's racial justice agenda in board meetings and also actively soliciting input from board directors of different racial backgrounds. John, what do you wanna share on the topic of uh, putting it on the the, the agenda, putting racial justice on the agenda and soliciting input from racially diverse uh, board directors?
0: Well, I think it's a couple of things there. One is that I think it is important for the CEO uh, or the lead director or the chairman of the board of a publicly traded company to put this on the agenda at a board meeting uh, on a regular basis, to understand the directors know when they come to these meetings, they're going to have a chance to talk about diversity and inclusion, the company's progress or lack thereof, the challenges they face, and to have it there for people to just have an open and honest conversation around it, we think is really important. The second thing, is, we think it's important that the chairman or the CEO or the lead director also has conversations with their diverse board members to say they welcome and encourage the candid open conversation, to really say what's on your mind, to be able to uh, be the true person that you are. Because we often find that if you're the only person of color in the boardroom, you get quiet and shy. Mm -hmm. You know, you're uncomfortable talking about uncomfortable issues and you don't think that it's going to be welcome. So it's important for that CEO or, again, that leader in the boardroom to make it clear that it's really welcomed and it's really, really important. Um, and that will create a culture where you'll have the best dialogue, the best discussions. And then finally, you've got to, again, have board members who are willing when they have this openness and open opportunity that they're really going to speak their truth. Um, who are going to speak truth to power, which is you know, one of those challenges that you know Bobby Kennedy used to talk about and the values that Dr. King talked about. What John Lewis talked about, you've got to be willing to, again, make good trouble. When you see something unfair and unjust, speak out, speak up. You have a moral responsibility to do that. And not everyone knows that. Not everyone's comfortable doing that. So you, you've got to make sure you've got that kind of person in the boardroom who will speak up when that atmosphere is appropriate and the culture is appropriate.
1: I tell you, John, every time you say this to me, I, I can't help but still feel a little bit... Um, unsure, unclear, concern, that these, these board directors are, are people like you who are extremely accomplished. You don't just take someone off the street and put them on a board. You all have accomplished so much in your careers. There's still this stand, long-standing opinion that one of the criteria for being a board director is uh, being having been a CEO of a company. Now that's changing a little bit, but still you this, the idea of having had C-suite level responsibilities I have students who are 17, 18 years old who are saying they have a hard time speaking in class, right? Right. To know that people who are of a certain age and and have accomplished so much are still having a hard time speaking in, in class, as a professor, I just still don't know what to do with that. So can you help us to understand perhaps a little bit more? I mean, maybe that was always the person who couldn't speak up in, in my class. I don't know. But it seems to me the fact that that, that leaders are struggling with having their voices heard um, in the context of a corporate board, that to me just seems a bit odd.
0: Yeah. Well, you know, there are still a lot of people, especially in our community, because of the way that we came to this country, are uncomfortable you know, making white people uncomfortable. And they've gotten ahead by making white people comfortable. You know, there are a lot of people, unfortunately, in our society. Dr. King talked about those kind of folks that he had to try to uh, inspire during the civil rights movement. he be willing to, you know, come out and, and protest with him and march with him and be a part of the cause. And everyone didn't jump on the bandwagon right away. And it still took a lot of convincing for that to happen. So this is a systemic problem that has been there um, for a long, long, long time in our country. I think that we have to, I think, celebrate those that are willing to, to speak out and, and speak up. And we have to be able to uh, challenge those that don't. Um, I talk a lot about this all the time. And you know, one of the interesting stories that Melody Hobson, uh, I hear about in terms of Melody Hobson, my co-CEO, is that uh, uh, the CEO of, uh, not the CEO, the chief operating officer, I guess, of Facebook, Sheryl Sandberg, you know, one of the leaders there at Facebook says that she was inspired to write Lean In because she saw that Melody was leaning in on a board that they served on together. And that Melody was fighting for women, fighting for African-Americans in that boardroom. And so she thought she needed to do more. She'd always been concerned that she was going to be typecast as the woman director and not being taken seriously like the other directors. So I think we have that in our own community. Some people are con- uncomfortable being typecast as the Black director, always only speaking about Black issues but I what Cheryl figured out is that if she didn't speak up or we don't speak up as African-Americans, who is? You know, the white guys have their own agendas and their own ideas and things that they're working on to, in their businesses and their business life. So it's infrequent that they're going to pick up our cause, you know, the way Bobby Kennedy did or others have in the past. So um, it's just so important that we we do this. And again, I'm really so proud of Melanie that she was actually able to, to uh challenge Cheryl and the Cheryl as we wrote lead in partially because of her exposure uh, to Melody.
1: Melody is absolutely incredible. She spoke to our our MBA students earlier this year, um, the new incoming MBA students, and I had the chance to listen in. And, and I, I can see she's absolutely fierce. Um, And and somebody who I think everybody would want to have on their board because she is somebody who uh, speaks her truth and speaks truth to power. And I think that's why she is so successful um, in all the work that she does. Um, And I'm so, you know, delighted that, um, you know, I get the opportunity to um, learn from you more about her and the work that you all are doing in this space. And I think more people should be listening as well.
0: And one of the things I would add to that, if you look at Melly's career being so outspoken, it hasn't damaged her. Yeah. You know, she's got to be chairman of DreamWorks Animation. She's vice chairman of Starbucks. She's on the board of J.P. Morgan Chase. There's been uh, rumors in the press that she could be a treasury secretary. You know, she's been voted one of the 100 most influential people in the world by Time magazine. And so I tell people all the time, you're not going to get punished. I think there's this fear that if you are too outspoken, and you tell your truth but somehow they're gonna kick you off the board or demote you or move you away. And I found the exact opposite happens. You know, uh, in my, your introduction, you were kind to say that I got to chair President Obama's uh, inauguration. You know, I think he felt good about my outspokenness. Mm -hmm. Got to be vice chairman of the University of Chicago. President Zimmer there has encouraged me to speak up and speak out and and, and fight for opportunities for African-Americans to be able to do business with the University of Chicago as entrepreneurs. So my, you know, there are some people, I'm sure, who have not included us because we're outspoken, but there's enough people of goodwill out there who are going to want someone out there who's going to tell the truth, be willing to talk about these difficult issues and ultimately rewarded for it.
1: Absolutely. Uh, this certainly all ties to our last, our third commitment. Um, and I think this is certainly the space that you, operated for, you operate from and that Melody Hobson operates from certainly. And that's the idea of promoting personal accountability and responsibility. So this is the notion that as uh, a person who is a board director, how important it is for you to demonstrate personal accountability and responsibility for advancing issues of racial justice, um, not only in the boardroom and for the firm, but also the communities in which you operate. Uh, So the two principles that we've suggested are important to uphold this commitment um, is that personally as a board director, how important it is for you to hold the board accountable to setting and making progress towards racial justice, And also this idea, which I truly love, is the idea of leaving the company stronger than when you arrived on the board. John, can you share your perspective uh, with us on this idea of personal accountability and responsibility?
0: It goes back to the inspiration of Leon Sullivan. He created these Sullivan principles. He left a legacy there at General Motors where he was on the board that lasted for a long, long time. We all should dream to be able to have that kind of lasting legacy because we were on the board. Mm-hmm. And so we want to get it into the framework of all the institutions that we work for. That not only is the team going to be more diverse, but they're going to be giving economic opportunities to black businesses and black business leaders and in concrete terms. We try to do some things that when I borrowed from the University of Chicago, instead of using the term supplier diversity, mm-hmm. replacing it with the term business diversity, hmm. to signal to everyone that you're going to work with black people in everything they do. Just not in just a few narrow areas where they have the slowest, which have the lowest profit margins. The second thing we also tell people is that, especially if you're involved with a financial institution, it's important to give access to capital to customers. But you need also to have access uh, access to customers as well as access to capital. You need to be able to do both. And if you get people to think about how they're spending their money every day, they got to give economic opportunity to black businesses. You're going to leave a legacy around that. And then the final thing is I think so important is that you're helping to create talent by going out and recruiting talent to the boards you're involved in. You know, I'm going to speak out and speak up and always help my companies find diverse talent wherever I've been on a board to make sure that I'm helping them find that talent and then hopefully modeling a a set of values that then they feel comfortable speaking out and speaking up as they rise within that country company. And then you've left a legacy there of the next generation of leaders who are going to lead in the right way. Mm -hmm. And we think that is so important. And then finally, I think it's important for you to, for all of us, to identify and celebrate the companies that have done a great job. You know, I mentioned the University of Chicago. McDonald's has done wonderful work. The Knight Foundation in in Miami. um, Exelon Corporation in Chicago. There are these institutions that have just done extraordinary work. And there's going to be a legacy there that's going to last for generations. Um, You know, last thing I'll say, the Knight Foundation is leading all the research. I was talking to the CFO today around uh, participation in the endowment funds. Mm -hmm. How do you get Black people involved in these endowment funds? And I left the board, I don't know, seven, eight years ago. Mm -hmm. And now they've become the leading foundation in the country around these key issues. So that's what you want to be able to do is to be able to help create a great culture so when you leave, they continue to lead in the same way.
1: Absolutely, absolutely. And, and I truly do believe uh, that, John, your commitment to these issues, your passion, advocacy, the being unafraid of people's reactions um, is certainly allowing the companies that you support the firms that you support and the boards that you're serving on. Um, I think you're creating a stronger board, stronger companies, and you certainly, the day that you depart, and I'm sure they will be sad, when you do depart someday, um, I could say that you are probably going to be leaving them stronger than when you arrived. And so, in general, I think as we were talking about these principles and we think about our original inspiration for creating them, it was this idea that, yes, we want to motivate board directors to take this leadership role, in advancing their company's racial justice agenda. Many of us have noted that um, while some CEOs have been focal and some C-suite people have been focal about ending systemic racism and advancing racial justice, that corporate board directors um, have often been silent. And so hopefully we, we expect that these principles will help corporate board directors to be less silent and more vocal around these issues. Um, I think the last part that I wanna say here is uh, I've managed to uh, wrangle John a a bit into uh, supporting a larger research study on this topic. So while the principles are are what has grounded I think our work together, um, I think we're both looking forward to um, collaborating in different ways on a larger study of understanding the experiences of black board directors. Uh, So before we go, John, I want to give you the opportunity to to help us once again return to the future. You did such a nice job of painting such an optimistic picture for us. Um, But I want to return to that place of optimism, of hope, of inspiration. You you mentioned, now you did mention that uh, private equity firms and venture capital boards are not often diverse. And I know we've had side conversations around how, how that's an opportunity. Um, and I also know that we have listeners, uh, many who are students, some who are, are are leaders who are interested in being on a corporate board someday. So let's first talk about the opportunities around diversifying private equity or venture capital boards. What opportunities do you see there? And then we'll talk a little bit about people who might want to join a board someday. Well, the
0: opportunity... Um is wide open now. I think in this environment, for the first time, these institutions are thinking about diverse board members for their companies that they're bringing public. Um, You know, know, putting minorities and African-Americans on private company boards is so critical because these private companies become public companies one day. We all know this. I know there's some preliminary data. The research isn't already done, but I have a really good friend who's done the preliminary work, and I, I want to share it with you. But her work so far shows that less than one-tenth of one percent of the board members from private equity and venture capital firms are African American.
1: Wow.
0: Less than one-tenth of one percent. Many of these private equity firms and venture capital firms have never had an African American on the board in the history of their institutions. It's unbelievable. It's literally like baseball in 1940. Like only white men apply, Mm. and maybe now a few women. And we've allowed this to happen. Because if you think about it, if all the university endowments in the world and all the major foundations told their private equity and venture capital firms they work with that they had to have diverse teams that look like America on the relationship, those guys would do the right thing. You know, We saw this when Harold Washington was the mayor of Atlanta and – I mean, sorry, Harold Washington, the mayor of Chicago, and Maynard Jackson was the mayor of Atlanta. When they said, you can't do business in our cities unless you guys bring investment bankers that look like America – all of a sudden, Drexel Burnham and Bear Stearns and Goldman Sachs had their first Black partners and executives because the customer demanded it. We as customers have to demand these institutions have diverse boards and as diverse executives in their C-suite. And it's just extraordinarily sad that we've sat in these leadership roles, sat on the boards of these foundations and universities and hospitals and museums, and allowed all the economics to go to white men primarily. It's unconscionable.
1: Absolutely. And so certainly we've always heard the excuse that, well, the reasons why the numbers are the way that they are is because that's who's available, i.e. we can't find any Black uh, directors. And I think certainly with the advent and the continued support of the Black Directors Conference, we're saying, no, there are a lot of people. You just need to go looking and be motivated to look for them. point
0: to that is that it's interesting a lot of the 200 most the vast majority of the 200 directors that come to our conference are on the biggest company boards in the world. Apple, JP Morgan Chase, Nike, you know, all the biggest companies in the world. The vast majority of them have never been asked to serve on the board of a private company or a uh, or a technology company that's private. Wow. Zero. And the, what's really challenging, we've had this preliminary data that so many of these technology companies, when they put a director on and then the company goes public, that director can make 5 to $10 million in a short period of time by being on a private company or uh, you know, a private venture capital-based company before it goes public. Mm-hmm. So we're missing out on the best economic opportunities. There's like this little club that these types of firms have been utilizing, and we've just been left out of that but we're talented enough to be on the boards of the largest companies in the world, but not talented enough to be on these small privately held companies?
1: That doesn't make any sense. It's interesting because certainly in many universities uh, and in colleges, business schools today, including the Wharton School, um, there is a lot of energy around entrepreneurship. Um, and there are many competitions that these students uh, undergraduate and, and MBA students enter um, to attract this type of money. Um, and then we all know how this works is that whoever gives the money has some right to say who's on the board. Um, and so I'm looking at the connection. Or I'm thinking about the connection between uh, students, entrepreneurs who are creating these companies, but I'm also thinking about the potential for students who maybe don't want to be the entrepreneur, but want to say something about how to govern, um, want to someday be on the board. Uh, what would you tell them? What should they be focusing on if they want to someday be on either a PE or VC board, or even a board of these large Fortune 500 companies?
0: Well, a couple things. Getting on boards is always about who you know and the relationships you build. So first and foremost, networking. You know, I'd say for for folks that are there at Wharton, at the University of Pennsylvania, getting involved with your alumni club, you know, being very visible, often African-Americans, we are not as engaged in our alumni clubs. We don't build the relationships there that we can. And people put people on boards that they know that often look like them, that come from their communities, that come from their uh, country clubs and the like. So one way to overcome that is to try to overcome that is to try to network where these business leaders are. Be in their face, force them to consider you, force them to think about you, because that's what has to happen. I think the second thing, of course, is you've got to be successful in your career. You know, it goes without saying, people are going to put you more likely on a board if you're a leader, you're in the C-suite, you've been doing dynamic things in your day job. Third thing I tell people is you get involved politically, uh, you get engaged in an exciting Senate race, House race, presidential race, mayor's race, the relationships you build there can be transformative. Melody Hobson got to meet Howard Schultz and get to know her well, uh, which led to her getting on the board of Starbucks and DreamWorks Animation because she was working on Bill Bradley's campaign for president when he ran against Al Gore. Oh,
1: wow.
0: And you know Howard was talking to Bill about who was your most successful volunteers, who were the people that worked the hardest, who, was, who were the best teammates, who were the most effective, and Bill Bradley said it was Melody Hobson. So getting actively engaged politically, community-wise, with your alma mater, all those things and help you build relationships to get you in the door to be a possible board member. But at the same time, all of us and all, you future, all the future leaders that are there at Warden, you're gonna be serving on boards of nonprofits that are deciding economic opportunities. You know, you'll be sitting on an investment committee and you're gonna be hiring money managers. If we all ask these tough questions about the lack of diversity, that increased demand, all of a sudden those venture capital firms will be looking for minority talent and maybe it'll come back to you directly or to your kids, or your grandkids, because if we all ask these tough questions together, we can all lift each other together. But if we stay silent, they can still continue to feel comfortable to get the ec- economic opportunity to only go to the same people who look like them that don't include us. So we've got to be able to again come back to that of asking these tough questions. And then those doors will start to open up for all of us. And I think that's critically important.
1: John, I don't think there is any better way to end our conversation today. I could certainly talk to you for hours and we will continue our conversations, uh, certainly I hope for for years to come. But uh, for today, I'm so grateful to you for coming on our podcast, for sharing your wisdom with us, for inspiring us, for advocating and supporting the really critical um, issues of our day. Um, I can't thank you enough for being such a wonderful citizen and a great leader. And I hope we grow more people just like you, John. So thank you so much for your time today.
0: Thank you so much. Thanks for all the great questions. It was was really fun.
1: Take care. For more
0: insight from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu.